It is Reformation season, that time of the year when the weather starts to cool down and the wind picks up and the leaves start to turn. There's coffee and pumpkin spice in the air and all of our minds turn to medieval Europe. <laughs> Who's with me? All right. If you are new around here, let me explain what's happening <laughs> here today. Here at Oak Hill, there are less than a handful of of special days that we mark on our church calendars. Every year there is, of course, Easter or Resurrection Sunday, that uh, special morning, the most important day on the entire church calendar. There's Thanksgiving Sunday where we intentionally look back at the year and, and talk about God's faithfulness and God's goodness to us. There's Advent as we begin to count down the, the weeks to the birth of Christ, that moment when, when God in the fullness of the time sent forth his Son into the world to take on flesh. And then there is Reformation Sunday. In this case, this year, Sunday's plural, where we just pause for a little while to uh, study and remember our Protestant roots. And I know that term is still a little bit strange to some of you because you didn't grow up saying that word Protestant, protesters, right? But that's technically who we are as a people. Whether you realize it or not, as you sit here this morning, you have been greatly impacted by the Reformation. You have been greatly impacted by what took place in medieval Europe 500 years ago. Your understanding of the Bible, your love for the Bible has come about because of it. The Reformation has impacted your doctrinal positions that you hold to. It has impacted what you think about the church and how you worship and how you pray and how you approach baptism and communion, of course, and so much more. And as American Protestants, and especially those who hold to Reformed theology... The Reformation connects us to our historical roots and our theological roots. It connects us to men who have gone before us, men like Luther and, and Wycliffe and Huss and Melanchthon and Zwingli and Cranmer and Tyndale and Calvin and Knox. These are some of our spiritual fathers. These are men who risked everything, including their very lives, contending for the true faith that was passed down to the apostles and to the early church. And because of their sacrifices, we get to sit here this morning in relative peace and in relative comfort. We all have copies of the inspired word of God in our laps, right? Or on our phones, in our language. Think about that. And we have no fear that soldiers sent by an emperor or a pope are going to come through those doors and try to arrest us or take away our Bibles. We take that for granted, but it's because of the Reformation. And in an age where so many Americans are not well-versed in history and don't know where they've come from, don't really understand the sacrifices that previous generations have made, we here at Oak Hill want to do our part to try to help remedy that. And, and we do that simply by taking a week or two, I know sometimes four weeks, but whatever it takes, to remember our roots in the Reformation every October. Now, you can see the phrase that is on the um, screen behind me, right? That is the theme of our observance this year, post-tenebris lux. And that's probably not a phrase that you have heard of before. You're probably more familiar with some of the great Reformation cries, things like sola scriptura, right? Or sola fide, or the five solas, which we've talked about here uh, many times at Oak Hill. But post-tenebris lux was equally important to the reformers, especially to the second generation reformers, men like Calvin and Knox. It is, of course, in Latin, and it means... After darkness, light. After darkness, light. It describes one of the great goals of the Reformation, and that is to recover the pure light of biblical truth after many centuries 
of spiritual darkness in Europe. And there are some great historical uses that we find of this phrase. It was adopted as the official motto of the city of Geneva, Switzerland, at the time that Calvin was the overseer of that important reformed city. Uh, we know that it is, is uh, in fact, let me, I'm going to give you a bunch of pictures here today, so stick with me. There we go. It actually shows up on the official seal you see in the bottom left-hand corner of the city of Geneva, and also it is, it is inscribed in this massive wall that's called Reformation Wall, which is in the city of Geneva today that you can go uh, look at and visit. And when you go there, you will see these four giants of the Reformation, William Farrell, John Calvin, Theodore Beza, and John Knox. Giants of the Reformation and Giants in Stone. Each one of those statues is 17 feet tall. And it's, it's one of the ways that Geneva remembers its historical roots. So this phrase is very meaningful, especially, like I said, for Calvin and for Knox and for the second generation reformers. Now, in talking to the elder team about how we were going to do Reformation Sunday this year, we thought it would be helpful to stretch it out over two weeks. So here's the plan. The focus for today is to talk about the pre-Reformation. What was it that caused and brought about the Reformation? And then next Sunday to talk about the post-Reformation. What came afterwards? How did the Catholic Church respond? And what does Reformed theology look like today, especially in the American church? Now, as we go through this, I do have a few goals that I always like to put on the screen to say, here's what we're trying to do. Because it's, it, I mean, it, just having holidays is, is purposeless, right? You want to make sure you have a few goals. So here are some of the goals that, we, that I'd like you to sort of hear and listen for. Number one, again, to appreciate our historical and theological roots. Very, very important. Number two, to see how God sovereignly moved in history, right? How he used his timing and his chosen servants to restore truth and to restore his church. And number three, to grasp the importance of the doctrine that we believe today, that we hold to today, because they are a matter of life and death, as we will see. Now, I always have to do an important caveat whenever we talk about the Catholic Church. We are going to be highly critical of the Roman Catholic Church today and next week. That's just, that is just the case. Every year that we do this, and, and, and there's no way to avoid it, right? Because history is what history is. But I want to give you a little bit of a warning. There's always a danger that we might come out of a study like this without any love or compassion for our Roman Catholic neighbors, and that would be a sinful result. So we've got to be careful here. Many of us have family or friends who either profess to be Catholic, profess to be lapsed Catholics, or maybe even are a part of a Catholic congregation today. So we need to be sensitive to that truth. And it's very important whenever we talk about the Catholic Church that we make a distinction between the leadership of the Catholic Church and the average person sitting in the Catholic pew. The first group, the Pope, the Cardinals, the bishops, the priests, they deserve our condemnation because they're wolves and they are leading people astray. And following in the footsteps of the true apostles of the church and the reformers, we should openly and honestly declare the truth that the Roman Catholic Church teaches a false gospel. And with Paul, as he said in Galatians 1, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. So we should be honest about that. Leadership deserves our condemnation. As for the second group, that family member who goes to a Catholic church or that neighbor of yours who lives down the street, it is very likely that he or she is locked into some long-held religious tradition that just feels like 
home for them, and it can be difficult to root them out of that, right? Most of them, they lack the knowledge and the spiritual eyes to see the error of their ways because if they're sitting in those pews and they are swallowing Catholic doctrine, they are currently being deceived by the enemy. So as we're being critical of the past history of the Roman Catholic Church in this study, let's make sure that we maintain our love for those folks and our evangelistic zeal for them because they are caught up in lies. And it's part of our job as missionaries for the truth to make sure we are good ambassadors for Christ. Amen? All right, now before we're done today, we're going to look at some key doctrines that, that led up to the Reformation. But before we go there, I want to lay out the historical context of the age that we're looking at today. So gird your loins for timelines and maps because they're coming. Now, it's easy to think that the Reformation was purely a religious movement. As Christians, we like to look at that aspect of it because it's most interesting to us. But the truth about the Reformation is much, much broader than that. There were revolutionary shifts in society taking place in Europe in the early 16th century. And those shifts, not necessarily religious, played a huge role in sparking what became a religious outcome of all of the conflict uh, in Europe and, and the results that we see around us today. In the same way, a lot of people are under the impression that Martin Luther just came out of nowhere, right? that his ideas just popped out of nowhere but the concept of reforming the church, again, had been around for centuries. It just took the right spark to light that fire. And that spark took place on, what's the date? What's the official date? October 31st, 1517, right? What we call Halloween Day. The day Luther pounded his 95 theses on the, the, the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Now, speaking of 1517, this would be a good time for us to just look at a brief timeline so you can get your bearings on things. Right there in the center, you see the main date of Luther in 1517, but you see some other names on there as well. And you go back like 145 years, you can see how early Reformation was on the hearts of some people in Europe long before Luther. We have John Wycliffe in England. We have Jan Hus in an area we call, that back then they called Bohemia. Today we call it the Czech Republic. Moving forward, then we have Luther and his right-hand right -hand theologian, uh, Philip Melanchthon, and you had Zwingli in, in Switzerland. Moving forward, we had the English Reformation with Thomas Cranmer and William Tyndale, and then the second generation of reformers, John Calvin in Geneva and John Knox in Scotland. Just so you have a, a basic timeline of what's going on here. Now, one of the questions that I often hear about, and this may sound strange to you, but if you think about it, it makes sense. Some people hear about the Reformation, and the question that comes to their mind is, why is the discussion so Eurocentric? What about the rest of the world? Why did everything take place in Europe? Well, the answer to that question comes with a map, okay? <laughs> Always. So look, what is that? That's the entire world, right? And the way to understand how the Reformation unfolded in Europe is to look at where the gospel took root in the 1,500 years after Christ ascended to heaven and he sent out his apostles. So this may shock you, maybe you know this, but this is how small the world was at the time of Christ, the known world. That's it. So sometimes we think, well, man, why was Israel in the center? Israel was literally in the center of it, wasn't it? The known world. That's basically the empire that Alexander the Great carved out and then expanded by the Romans. Here's the question. You see that little arrow there. In all of the missionary journeys of Paul in the book of Acts, what direction does he go in? First he goes north and everything launches out of Antioch in Syria, but then always, 
You can say left. <laughs> you just say left. But west, right? Always to the west, right? To the north and then always west. Through Syria, through Asia Minor, and then across the sea to Greece, which is on the eastern edge of Europe, right? Now, we also know that Paul eventually got even further west to the city of Rome and had a desire, he mentions it in the book of Romans, about getting even further west to the very edge of what the known world was at that time, which was Spain. Now, does that mean that the apostles ignored the lands to the south and to the east? Absolutely not. In fact, the gospel grew very, very deeply in Egypt to the south. Some of the, the greatest early church fathers were, were stationed in Alexandria. We don't know that to be true. But there was less success in the east, less deep roots put down in the east. There are some reliable historical stories about some of the apostles going into Arabia and into India. Thaddeus is mentioned, Thomas is mentioned as two apostles that went east. But the eastern churches bumped into a huge obstacle called Islam. Have you heard of this? Yeah, Islam. While the churches in Europe continued to take deep root and expand, the churches in the east suffered great losses at the hands of Islamic armies. In the 6th century, Muhammad conquered all of Arabia. By the way, in his memoirs that were written down by other people, Muhammad talks about coming into contact with Christians in Arabia during the caravans that went back and forth across the desert. So he knew quite a bit about both Judaism and Christianity. So Muhammad conquered all of uh, Arabia, but then his followers over the next hundred years conquered so much of the territory that you see to the south and to the east of Jerusalem, conquered all of Egypt, conquered the Holy Land, all of Palestine, conquered Syria, conquered Asia Minor. All of that became Islamic territory in the 6th and 7th century. So by the time the Reformation comes around, Christianity has sort of been contained in this territory that we know as Europe. Okay, so that helps us to understand. Now, here's the known world after, in 1500, right before the Reformation breaks out. You see some additional areas there in red. Clearly, the world had expanded, but still, even at the time of Luther, we don't realize four of the seven continents around the world had not been put on the map yet. They were still to be discovered. So North America, South America, Oceania, or what we call Australia, and also Antarctica had not been touched yet. So don't forget the time frame here. Now, Luther pounds his 95 theses in what year? 1517. And what year did Columbus sail the ocean blue? 1492. So they're, they're pretty close. At the very same time that the Reformation is starting to gather steam in Europe, monarchs from Europe are beginning to send explorers out into the unknown, into the ocean, trying to find a, a actually a road to China and India by by sailing west and not having a clue what they were going to bump into as they go. So you see there in red, by the time 1500 rolls around, the world is now aware of the British islands and the Scandinavian nations and Russia in the north. We've already had the great Khans of Mongolia establish their lands. The Ming Dynasty is established in China. The Mamluks are established in India. Only the western coast of Africa has been explored at this point. And the Vikings, we know, had sailed across the sea and had discovered both Iceland and the very coast of Greenland. So even as the Christian church in Europe is about to go through this century of internal strife, what you need to see on this map is the majority of the world still needed to be evangelized. It still needed to be evangelized. Most people around the world, all the indigenous peoples that hadn't come into contact with Europeans yet, were 
we're acting upon some form of pagan worship. Animism, spiritism, right? The worship of nature, polytheism, pantheism, all these different types of things. And of course, at the same time, Islam is now beginning to surround Europe. Islam is now bumping up onto the eastern border of, of Europe, almost to the gates of Vienna, Austria, and also had taken over all of North Africa. So they were just a, a short boat ride to the south of Europe in North Africa. So the map is very interesting at the time that the Reformation breaks out. Now, having, having done all that, we, we may have a few more maps, but that's enough for now. You may be surprised by this, and, and I don't want you to be shaken by it, but, but we call this thing the Reformation, but that's actually not a great name for it. Now, it's always going to be called the Reformation because we've all sort of decided that's what it should be called, but realize that history is always written from the eye of the beholder. The Roman Catholic Church would not call it a Reformation, so it's all about perspective. You know what they would call it? A heretical schism. The Catholic Church in that day called it a heretical rebellion against God's authority. Okay, so again, perspective matters. But because of the hardness of their heart and their stubborn refusal to see the error of their ways, when all is said and done, there is very little reformation that comes about from the Reformation. Very little reformation of the Catholic Church. In fact, 40 years after Luther pounds the 95 Theses on that door, the Roman Catholic Church came together in what's called the Council of Trent, which is still a very influential council, and they refused to reform much of anything. In fact, they doubled down on almost every core tenet of Roman Catholicism at the Council of Trent. So a more accurate name for the Reformation from our perspective would probably be the Protestant Revolution. Really, it's because it didn't reform a whole lot. It's a revolution. It's an overthrowing of what at that time was the church's structure, authority, and doctrine. It was a wholesale rejection of everything that Rome stood for. And it was a return of the church to biblical authority and a return of the church to a structure that looked like the New Testament and not this giant thing in Rome that didn't look anything like the New Testament anymore. So it was a return to those things. It was a revolution. Now, what's interesting about the year 1517 is this. Why did Reformation take place at that time? You could make the case that there were previous centuries that were much worse than the early 16th century. In the 11th and 12th centuries, for example, the arrogance and the power of the papacy was at its absolute zenith, primarily through these two guys. And I just like to put up pictures. Gregory VII, Gregory VII, and probably the most powerful pope that's ever existed on the earth, Pope Innocent III. Isn't that a great name? I know, I'm going to pick a name, I'll call myself Innocent, right? Pope Innocent III. These men, both Italians, by the way, literally, and this is interesting, politically and militarily dominated the kings of Europe in their day. They both oversaw what's called the Holy Roman Empire, which gave them armies. You got to think about this. They had armies, popes. I'm still waiting for my army to be given to me here at Oak Hill. Any, any volunteers? No. But I mean, think about that. You had a... You had a, a secular sword and a spiritual sword, but these popes dominated the kings of Europe. They controlled the armies. They were very powerful men. And they declared great boastings about their office and their role. Each one of them declared, get this, that they, quote, sat in the chair of Christ himself and that God had granted them supreme authority over all things on the earth. Imagine that. 
They, they wielded excommunication as a political weapon. They, they wielded something called interdict, was the, the power to shut churches down in an entire country, to literally stop communion from taking place. If you were a ruler or a church official that got out of line and you were on the bad side of Rome, they could literally, he, one man could literally shut down the entire, your entire church and halt communion. So it was bad in this particular time, 11th and 12th centuries. Then there's what historians call the Great Western Schism of the 14th century that's both sad and laughable. In 1305, the cardinals in Rome made a very regrettable decision. They elected a Frenchman to be Pope. Okay, no knock against the French. I'm half French, it's okay. He took the name Clement V, and then because of his close relationship with King Philip of France, he left Rome, a Pope left Rome, and he went to Avignon in the south of France and built a whole new papal court. He just abandoned it. In fact, you can visit it today. He built this back in the 13th century, 14th century, right? He built this. A whole new papal court, abandoned Rome altogether. Now, you can imagine how the Italian cardinals in Rome felt about this, that the Pope, who was now particularly French, which was bad enough, but now had abandoned Rome and was set up in France. Now, what followed this was a ridiculous and embarrassing period of time where multiple popes all claimed to be the vicar of Christ on earth, some in France, some in Rome, and they all raised armies to fight each other to see who God's will really was upon. I mean, we're talking 65 years of conflict, what they call popes and anti-popes, but different men claiming to be the vicar of Christ and literally ready to go to war to establish their power. Very embarrassing time for the church. So things have been worse than the time of, of Luther. But despite all those shenanigans, the conditions for, for wide-ranging reformation uh, weren't in place just yet. Not that it wasn't tried. I said John Wycliffe had started that process very effectively in England. Jan Hus in Bohemia had followed up on Wycliffe's work and it cost him his life. He was actually burned at the stake by order of the Pope in the year 1415. So 85 years after that, after Huss is burned at the stake, at the dawn of the 16th century, Europe was now a powder keg ready to explode. And here are the reasons why. First of all, the papacy had become a cesspool of corruption and greed. A cesspool of corruption and greed. Now, it had always been that way for a long time, but by 1500, guess what was happening? The common people were starting to wake up to it. They're starting to see it, and passions were starting to rise. There's an old saying, and, and we're starting to feel it here in this country as well. You can only run a grift for so long before people who are struggling look around and start asking hard questions. Like, what's going on around here? And that was happening in the day of Luther. The reality was the medieval popes had not only amassed extensive political power over the centuries, but they were extremely rich, extremely wealthy. The bottom line is the common man could look at the popes in Rome from afar and say, these are not shepherds. These are not shepherds of the church. They look nothing like the humble pastors and elders of the New Testament. These men were more like secular princes, is what they were with lifestyles as opulent as any monarch in Europe. And despite the official position of the Catholic Church that all clergy are to remain celibate, have you heard this? You're to be, remain celibate once you've been ordained. Most of the popes of the medieval period just decided that that rule was, was beneath them. It's the old rules for thee, but not for me, right? 
Just one example, Alexander VI. He was the Pope beginning in 1492 when Columbus set out. He reigned for 11 years. He had more mistresses than historians can even count. In fact, two of them were married women, women that were his subjects married to other nobles in, in the city, and he fathered at least 11 children. We're not exactly sure the number. And, and the, the worst part was, at first he tried to hide it, but then it became common knowledge, but there was no one in the land with the power to stand up and say, that's not right, and depose him. He just did what he wanted to do. So you've got corruption, you've got power, you've got wealth. In terms of wealth, the Roman Catholic Church, if you don't know this, was the largest landholder on the entire continent. The Catholic Church owned, historians have guessed, somewhere around a third of the land in all of Europe, if you can imagine. Now, some of that land was donated, but a whole bunch of it was taken through briberies. A whole bunch of it was just confiscated. Again, if you, if you fell on the wrong side of the Pope, it's likely that he could just take your land and there's absolutely nothing you could do about it. Very, very wealthy. By 1500, every ritual blessed by the church came with a tax. First, the, every family was required, required by law to give 10% tithe of their income or their produce. But beyond that, you had to pay for a baptism. You had to pay for a priestly absolution. You had to pay to venerate relics. You had to pay for indulgences to escape purgatory. And in the process of robbing the common people blind, the church became so wealthy that way back in Rome, again, imagine if you're, you're just living in Switzerland or Germany and, and a thousand miles away in Rome, what are these guys doing with all of this wealth? They're funding massive art projects. They're building more and more massive, beautiful cathedrals with your money. Can you see the problem? In the year 1513, just four years before Luther posted his theses, uh, a new pope was elected. And in reality, historians have been able to show that he just bought the papacy. He bought the office. And his name was Giovanni de' Medici. You may have heard that name before, the very famous Medici family. This was a banking family from Florence, one of the richest families in all of Europe, four Medicis actually became Pope. Four guys from the same family. They just bought their way in. These guys had loaned money to every single monarch in Europe. So guess who was in control? This is the guy that had to contend with Luther. This is the guy that Luther was facing down, Pope Leo X. Now, all this greed and corruption wasn't just limited to the Pope. It trickled down to the rest of the, of the hierarchy, to the cardinals and the bishops, even to the local priests. Concubines just became normal. Yes, we can't go out and get married, so we just have concubines. That became very normal. In fact, Luther at one time traveled from, from Erfurt, Germany to, to Rome, and when he got back, he said Rome was a cesspool. He literally saw brothels that serviced the clergy in Rome. It was that bad. So this was normal stuff. Like those above them, local church officials would charge clerical fees for every spiritual act they performed. Can you imagine? Can you imagine having to pay the elder team here at Oak Hill for everything that we do? No comments, please. <laughs> One of the most egregious things that took place in this, in this period is something called simony. It has nothing to do with Simon. But that's where bishops would sell church offices to the highest bidder. They would sell titles in the church to the highest bidders, and then they would get a title, and then they would send those guys out to collect more fees from the people and take a cut. And this is how they got wealthy. You can only imagine how the common people felt about this. 
Most people in Europe at this time are just trying to eke out an existence, to, to just survive. And now you've got the church becoming an oppressor instead of a spiritual guide. Again, just one example in England, this guy, Cardinal uh, Thomas Wolsey. He was the Archbishop of York during the time of Luther, eventually became a cardinal. This guy owned four palaces in England. He had more than 500 personal servants. <laughs> Can you imagine? In fact, it was said he was so well-known, such a celebrity in England at the time, that the King of England was jealous of him, jealous of his lifestyle. So this is what's going on. You can, you can almost, as you walk through these things, you can feel the tension, right? What the people must have been feeling. Now, two more key historical factors, and then we'll get to the doctrine. One of the most important things that sparked the Reformation outside of just the religious aspect was what we call a humanistic spirit of the day or a Renaissance spirit of the day. You guys, if you ever studied the Renaissance, basically we're talking about 1300 to 1600 is the period of the Renaissance. Many Europeans, particularly those in the upper class of society, had grown anxious to put the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages behind them, right? To turn away from the, the superstitions and the mysticism of the church. And they were starting to view Roman Catholicism as just that, some weird form of, of magical superstition. They would, they would write about how the priest would, would stand over the elements of communion and, and, and whisper magic words over it, right? In a language that nobody in the church can even understand because they're speaking Latin and the average person couldn't speak Latin. And then somehow they would mock the idea that by speaking these magic words, this simple bread and wine would be turned into the literal body and blood of Christ. And then they asked the question, how many bodies does Jesus have? that they can be everywhere in every single church, every single weekend. It doesn't make sense. And so people started to really think these things through. Many were rejecting the idea of venerating statues and venerating images and long dead saints and becoming skeptical of all the relics that the church said that they had when really it was nothing but a fundraising project. The idea of buying indulgences or making pilgrimages to holy sites in order to buy years out of purgatory. People were starting to put the puzzle together. And the truth is the Renaissance has sparked new interests among the upper crust, at least, towards things like philosophy and architecture and painting and sculptures and classical music. They were turning especially, and this is what's interesting, toward a rediscovery of the, of the classics of both Hebrew and Greek, particularly the biblical text. There was a, a move in Europe for people to move away from the Latin Vulgate Bible, which was what the Catholic Church pushed, and to say, Ad fontis became this cry of the Reformation. Um, to the sources. Let's go back to the original Hebrew. Let's go back to the Greek. And so suddenly universities were springing up in Europe and they were beginning to study classical Greek and Hebrew. To add fuel to this, in 1453, so just before the Reformation, Constantinople fell, didn't it? You guys heard the story? The Ottoman Turks take down Constantinople. Well, so many scrolls of the Roman Empire and Christianity were kept in Constantinople, in the Byzantine Empire, that as that city was falling, all these scholars collected their scrolls and they fled to Western Europe. And now people were reading theologians like Augustine for the very first time. They were reading Anselm and the Cappadocian Fathers. So you've got a, a renaissance of studying biblical texts and you've got a renaissance of studying good, solid theology. And through the study of these works, scholars and writers began to whisper you know what? Maybe this Roman Catholic system is for the birds. It doesn't make sense. 
And you begin to see it in their, in their writings back and forth. Very smart guys, scholars who are reading the original sources, beginning to question the Roman Catholic system. Then add on top of that, you've got the invention of the printing press in 1450, the Gutenberg printing press. Guess what? Now these men could write about new ideas and not just one time, but print it and spread ideas all over Europe. None of this was good for the Pope. None of this was good for the Catholic structure, which for so long had a vice grip on the people and upon every nation in Europe. Now, one last thing, and that's the, the factor of what we call nationalism. As the year 1500 approached, many parts of Europe were going through an economic change. If you've ever studied the feudal system in, um, in Europe, a system where you had very wealthy men that were called lords, right? And then they had a priestly class, and everybody else was what? A serf, basically a, a conscripted slave, right? And then also the lords had a security team who were known as the knights. That's what the knights were. They were security teams for the lords in these manors. Well, that was crumbling. The feudal system was crumbling around 1500, and a true middle class was starting to grow in parts of Europe. There was trade and there was commerce, and towns were beginning to be established. For the first time, you had a whole class of people looking at the situation and seeing this massive wealth gap between themselves and the clergy. Hmm. Now we're seeing this in our country as well. People are waking up to the fact that we have elites in our country. There's this massive wealth gap and people are asking questions. It's amazing how history cycles, isn't it? So they were asking questions. Folks are beginning to wonder, where's my hard-earned money going? What do I benefit from Rome? A thousand miles away. All this money is being siphoned out of our local economy and it's going to some place and it's going into some ditch somewhere. All I know is art projects and sculptures and cathedrals are being built. How does any of this benefit me? People were starting to ask those questions. And again, Rome began to be viewed as more of an oppressor than a help. And of course, what's interesting about that is as that awareness grew, Local nobles in all of these nations who want power themselves began to seize on that sort of rebellious spirit and they thought, you know what? Yeah, I want to break the yoke of this papal rule in Rome. I want to keep more of that local economy in my pocket. And so this spirit of rebellion continued to grow. A lot of these nations wanted to establish their own churches. They wanted to establish worship in their own languages. Even this, think about this, the Bible in our language. That started to be whispered in various parts of Europe. So you add all these things up, and here's, here's a brief list. Corruption, greed, hypocrisy, a renaissance spirit, the rise of nationalism. All it took in this atmosphere was a little bit of a spark to get it going, right? And that spark was a tenacious little monk in the backwoods of Germany named Martin Luther, and it was on. By the way, that is the last piece that really was necessary for the Reformation, courageous leadership. Got to have courageous leadership. Somebody who was willing to take a stand and risk his life to see real change come. And Luther was like a dog on a bone. That's, he was just a pugnacious little guy that was not going to stop and he was not going to retreat. He would die first. And that was required. Pope Leo, on two different occasions, actually wrote about Luther. Once he called him a wild boar loose in the vineyard of Christ and then later on called him a stiff-necked, notorious, damned heretic. I got to say that in church. It's fantastic. 
All right, so, so that's the, all the pre-Reformation stuff. So hopefully that draws a little bit of a picture. You, so you can see it's more than just a religious movement. One day, 95 Theses, and here we go. There was a lot going on. Now, two massive doctrinal issues that we need to talk about this morning. Now, there's a lot of things we could talk about. I'd love to, if we had time to talk about the Eucharist, right? The communion, because that was such a big issue uh, in this particular conflict even within the reformers, right? They squabbled and disagreed over communion. We could talk about the differences in ecclesiology, how the church is supposed to be structured and overseen. Who gets to interpret scripture is a huge question. We could talk about sharp differences over original sin and, and man's will, how that plays into election and predestination. We could talk about worship of Mary. We could talk about purgatory, all those things. But let me give you some advice. When you are talking to your Roman Catholic friends, and you are wanting to evangelize, you just want to share some truth, can I encourage you to stick on the two primary issues that really matter the most? These are the things you need, like a dog on a bone, you need to stick on. The first one is this, authority. The formal principle of the Reformation comes down to authority. Okay? Who or what has the final say when it comes to truth? And the reason it's called the formal principle of the Reformation is because every other doctrine flows from that. Because if you can't figure this one out, who has the, who has the power to declare what is true, then you have absolutely no common ground, right? So start here. This is the key question to start with. Who has the authority when it comes to defining truth? Now, the Roman Catholic view of authority is often explained. It's their favorite uh, image uh, of a three-legged stool. I'll put a picture up that helps you. This, this is how they themselves would describe authority. One leg of authority, they say, is scripture. A second leg is tradition. And the third leg of authority is called the magisterium. We'll get to that in a second. A three-legged stool. Now, when it comes to scripture, the Roman Catholic Church considers the Bible divinely inspired, as we do, right? 2 Timothy 3.16. We, we agree with that. However, does the Catholic Church have different books in their Bible? Yes, they do. They have a number of books tucked right there in the middle. They call it a deuterocanonical collection, a second canon of books between the Old and the New Testaments. Okay, and they are apocryphal works. You, you know some of these names. Some of you, how many of you guys grew up with the Catholic Bible in your home or you went to church in a Catholic church? Okay, a few hands. Yeah. So you know some of these books. Tobit, Judith, the Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, First and Second Maccabees. If you don't know, the apocryphal works actually have additions to the Old Testament books of Esther and Daniel as well. And you may say, well, big deal. You know, they're just a, a bunch of little books in the middle of the Bible. Here's the problem. There are some core Roman Catholic beliefs that are in those books. Things that are clearly not anywhere in the Bible. And so they're heretical positions. I'm talking about by salvation by works is taught in some of these deuterocanonical books. The idea of praying for the dead, the idea of making offerings for the dead. The whole doctrine of purgatory is included in some of these apocryphal works. So it does matter. It's important to know that. So yes, we can share this part of the authority, but even that is different from what we believe. The second leg is tradition. This is where it gets interesting, right? What is tradition? Here's what they mean. Here's what the Catholic Church means by tradition. Supposed teachings of Jesus that were never written down, but were orally communicated to his apostles. And then those apostles orally communicated those same teachings to the first generation of early church fathers. And, and this is part of what the Catholic Church calls apostolic succession. 
Those early church fathers passed it on and so on and so on. For 2,000 years, this oral canon has been passed down to the current apostles in the, in the Roman Catholic Church, and this is known as tradition. What does that mean? It means that over time, we have a body of doctrines and beliefs that have been accumulated and codified by the Catholic Church, declared true, but they're not found anywhere in Scripture. In fact, they cannot even trace, in many cases, the original source of those teachings. It's just been assumed and codified. That's a problem. On top of that, the Catholic Church has declared that there are times when the Pope can, can go what they call ex cathedra on the record, and he can declare even new divine truths on the same level of Scripture. That's a problem, right? For example, in 1854, Pope Pius IX announced the Immaculate Conception of Mary. Where did he get that from? Absolutely nobody knows. But it's codified as scripture now in the Catholic Church because the Pope said it on the record. In 1950, we have another. Pope Pius XII proclaimed the bodily assumption of Mary. Where did that come from? Nobody knows, but it is now codified as scripture in the Roman Catholic Church. This is problematic. So as ridiculous as those ideas are, they are now unquestionable doctrines in the Roman Catholic Church. They must be believed because these two, these two popes spoke them into existence. So it's important for you and I to understand that the official position of the Catholic Church, and I'm now going to quote from their own source, quote, both scripture and tradition are to be accepted and honored with equal amounts of devotion and reverence. So never let some Catholic apologist try to tell you, no, we're led by scripture. Equal amounts of honor and reverence between this oral body of who knows what and where it's come from with scripture. Then they seal the deal with the third leg, the magisterium. What, do we, what does the magisterium mean? That's simply the teaching office of the Catholic Church. It's the Pope, along with the bishops, who have the sole right to interpret Scripture and to interpret tradition and to pronounce whatever they say as true and binding upon every single Catholic on the earth. That's a lot of power. Every single worshiper becomes dependent upon their voice. It is an unlimited power to move and direct people. Think about that. And it takes away any right of private interpretation. It takes away any right that a human being has to object to interpretation. And this is something that the reformers fought very hard for, this idea of the priesthood of all believers, right? Comes straight out of 1 Peter 2.5, that we all are priests, that we all have the right of interpretation, and that we ought not stand under the interpretation of any man but to search the scriptures and to listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit as we interpret the Bible. Make sense? Okay, so what about Protestants? What should we believe? Well, here's what, our, here's what we look like, right? Just picture a single marble pillar with one element on it, and that is the Word of God. Very simple. Divinely inspired, true, sufficient, clear, binding, and with the power to transform lives when illuminated and applied by the Holy Spirit to the heart. Amen? That's, that's our authority. This is the principle of sola scriptura, one of the great cries of the Reformation, scripture alone. This is probably the, the single most important theological commitment of this age because everything else flows out of it, right? What is your authority? And we say scripture alone. Now, as we say that, if you ever talk to a uh, 
a Roman Catholic who knows a little bit about their faith, they're going to they're challenge you on sola scriptura. So a couple of important things need to, be, need to be sort of tagged onto it so that you can fully discuss it. First, sola scriptura does not mean that the church has no other authorities. Sola scriptura does not mean that there, there is no room for any tradition whatsoever. Tradition can be helpful in the church for, for teaching, for understanding God's word. And when I say tradition, I mean the accumulated wisdom of the historical church. Those are, those are helpful aids to understanding scripture. So we've already read a confession this morning together, right? Creeds and confessions. How many of you guys own Bible commentaries? It's tradition, right? It's tradition. We've got things like, you know, sermons from great preachers of the past. We have books and articles and blogs from trusted sources. I read those things. I enjoy them. They're helpful to me. We read them in church. They're all great provided, here's the big caveat, right? They're rooted in scripture. Provided they summarize proper biblical principles. And here's the thing, overall, and Grant was so gracious to say it before we read the confession this morning, this is not scripture. They are not inspired as the scriptures are, amen? And therefore, they're always subordinate to scripture. Helpful, yes, tradition can be helpful, but to say that scripture and tradition are on the same level as the Catholic Church, it's heresy. It's a false gospel. Amen? So, sola scriptura is our cry because scripture alone is the final authority. There are other authorities, but that's the final authority under which everything is subordinated, every single thing. Second qualification is, yes, we actually agree with the Catholic Church that there is a teaching authority in the church. The church needs a teaching authority. In the Protestant church, we look to qualified leaders, qualified by scripture. To, to, I'm one of them. I stand up right here and I exposit scripture and I try to explain to you what the Bible says and try to help you apply it. And hopefully you're able to look to me, you trust me, you look to the other elders and trust them, but we don't function in the same way as the Catholic magisterium does. We do not have an exclusive right to interpret the Bible for you. We do not have that right. We do not demand that you accept what we say. In fact, we go the opposite way. We say you ought to act like the Bereans of the first century who listened to what the apostles said and then looked at the scriptures themselves to see if that was actually true. So it's very different than what, than what the uh, Roman Catholic Church teaches. But there is a teaching office. There is tradition and there is a teaching office in the Protestant church. We just line it up right. Make sense? All right, so that's the first thing. When you're talking to your Catholic friends, Stay there on that authority issue, okay? And if you can remember some of this history to say, hey guys, look, you've got tradition and you've got the magisterium. Can we look at the history of some of these guys that you're trusting in? I mean, trusting in men is bad period, right? Because the confession said it, right? We're all liars, right? We're all vain. Did you, did you catch that in the confession, by the way? By nature, that's who we are. So to trust in men is bad. But to look at the track record, of the popes and the cardinals and the bishops of the church and say, yeah, we trust those guys? I make the face like, are you sure you want to trust those guys? Right? It's an important, important discussion to have. Okay, where am I? Second thing, all right. Second thing, what's the other big issue? And it's very simple. It's the doctrine of justification. You've got to stop. You've got to start with authority and then you've got to move to justification. How are people saved? It is such a key issue. This is what we call the material principle of the Reformation. Now, what does the Roman Catholic Church believe about justification? 
Don't be fooled by this. They like to play word games on it, but if you go to their sources, you can find out exactly what they teach. First, you have to know that the magisterium in Rome rejects the doctrine of original sin. They reject the doctrine of total depravity. In fact, they are semi-Pelagian in the way they view the fall. If you don't know what I mean by that, look it up. It's a really great read. Semi-Pelagian. Here's, here's what basically what that means. They teach that the fall weakened man's will, but did not corrupt it. Weakened it, but did not corrupt it. In other words, man still has a certain measure of, of freedom of the will, and so therefore man can, through his own strength and through his own capacity within himself, can turn to God and in some way help to save himself, to cooperate with God and to help save himself. Okay, so they start in the wrong place, and so they end up in the wrong place. And they deny the very clear truth in Romans 3, 10, and 11 that says there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seek after God. They deny that completely. And, and, and by the way, some of our Protestant Arminian friends do the same thing. They so badly want to hold on to a man-centered view of salvation. They want to say, okay, the fall was bad, but not totally bad. <laughs> We're not totally depraved. We still have enough strength to turn to God to be saved. And the reformer said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Still, the Roman Catholic Church will talk about faith as a necessary condition for salvation, but they will also tell you that this is true. A person can have genuine faith in God, genuine faith in Christ, and still not be justified. Why is that? Because the system is what the system is. Here's the reality. Justification in the Catholic system is ultimately accomplished through the sacraments. It's ultimately accomplished through the sacrament. Here's the full picture. It starts with a person cooperating with God in baptism. They will refer to baptism as the fountain of regeneration. And they will teach that the stain of original sin is removed through baptism. Okay, even for an infant or, or for a baby. That's why you see that continuing to happen in the Catholic Church. For the adult to be justified, they have to pass through a moral preparation. They have to commit to turn from sin and turn towards God in their own strength to have genuine sorrow for sin, and to resolve and commit to live a life of following after the commandments of God. That's all good and well, but it's all in the man's strength. It, hasn't, it literally is apart from what, what God does. It is in the man's strength. All this brings about in the sinner what they call a union with the divine, and they receive through the church, okay, that's the key, through the church, because salvation is ultimately through the sacraments and through the church, they receive what the Catholic Church calls justifying grace. It's not God who saves, it's the sinner participating, cooperating with God and basically saving himself in every stop of the process and he's rewarded with justifying grace. Here's the, uh, here's the, the rough part. A person retains that justifying grace until what? Until they sin, until they commit a mortal sin. Now has anybody seen the term mortal sin in the Bible? as opposed to other sins. No. What they will tell you is that there are certain sins that are really, really bad, mortal sins, and those kill the justifying grace of God. That's why they're called mortal. So after a mortal sin, a person has to be justified again. Now, if they've already been baptized, they can't be baptized again, so they substitute baptism for a different sacrament, which is the sacrament of penance. And that's how you're re-justified. You go through that process again. In Catholic theology, they go so far as to describe penance as a second plank of justification. 
Again, is any of this in Scripture? Absolutely not. So in the big picture, justification depends on constantly replenishing this justifying grace in your life. It has to be earned by participation in the sacraments. It has to be earned by being in the Mass, by by taking the Eucharist. It's earned by saying certain prayers, the Rosary or the Hail Marys. It's earned in all these different ways. And the goal of all of it is, at the end of your life, when you die, hopefully you've stored up enough of that grace to where you can go right straight through purgatory and into heaven. That's the system. Let me share with you a very straightforward quote from Rome's most trusted and most binding council, the Council of Trent. Listen to this now. Lest any Roman Catholic try to tell you it's about faith, quote, only faith that is active in charity and good works can justify a man. It is salvation by works, folks, period. Period, they cannot argue it. And listen, in the Roman Catholic system, there is no assurance of salvation. There is no assurance. There is no security in the love of Christ. There is only a demand for constant performance. And of course, it means that it can be lost at any time, depending on your sins. It's really a sad way to live in that regard, isn't it? Now, to contrast that, here's what Luther discovered. Because remember, Luther was a good Catholic, a really good Catholic. He was ordained as a priest. He went into the monastery. He devoted his life to God. But here's what he discovered. He spent six years in a monastery in Erfurt, Germany, right? And here's what set all of Europe on fire. He discovered the radical concept that we are justified by God's grace alone through faith alone. That's what he discovered. And it came to him, listen, this this will blow your mind. Luther devoted his life to God and went into the monastery at a time when he had never read the Bible. He'd never read it. He got to the monastery and there was a copy of the Bible in Latin chained to the wall. And he opened it up to Romans. (laughs) To Romans 1 and it changed his life. And this is why we read the call to worship this morning. Romans 1, 16 and 17 is the true spark of the Reformation. It's what got into Luther's soul and he couldn't let it go. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. That became his motto in all of his preaching. The righteous shall live by faith. In the monastery he'd been taught differently. He'd been taught the standard of that day is, hey, come, do good works, devote your life to God, do the best you can to please God. But what he realized was he couldn't do it. And it frustrated, it drove him to deep despair. I'm told I'm supposed to please God, and yet I sin constantly. And so he, there's stories, he almost died in the monastery because it wrecked his body of sickness and, and he became so unhealthy. He wrestled night and day with the devil. He couldn't eat. He couldn't sleep. And it was all because his conscience kept telling him, you keep sinning. And every time you sin, you need to go find a brother and confess your sin. And he was driving everybody nuts. That's the story of his life. It drove him to despair. That's when God showed him the truth. That's when he opened up to Romans 1. And can you imagine if you're living that life of constant performance, of trying to live up to these impossible standards and then you read a text like this and you see it's by God's grace alone. It's by faith alone that I can be saved. Now we have to be careful not to put words into his mouth. At first it wasn't called justification by faith alone. For Luther it was simply this. He was gonna renounce all human works and all human merit. 
because he knew he couldn't do it. And he was going to throw himself with full dependence upon the grace of God in order to be saved. Luther even came to understand that faith itself was a gift from God, that he couldn't muster that up, that salvation was a gift of God. In fact, ultimately he taught, as Calvin did later, that the entire process was a work of God from beginning to end. And that gets fleshed out in this idea of imputation, big word, but so important. In fact, a double imputation. And he saw it in the scripture. He said, wait a second. My mind is blown here. Wait, my sin gets imputed to Jesus. It gets reckoned to his account and his perfect righteousness gets imputed or reckoned to my account. And that just destroyed him with love. It just destroyed him with with such a passion for the gospel. And it should for us as well, right? This idea that we get Christ's righteousness and he takes our sin. This is the gospel, folks. What a beautiful exchange that is. So Luther and Pope Leo, let's just be honest, they held two radically different views of salvation. Two views that could not be reconciled because one is the gospel and the other is not the gospel. And so this is why Luther later on, years later, was able to stand in front of the the Holy Roman Emperor and all the cardinals of the church and to look in the eye and say, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. Wow, it's amazing stuff. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for a chance to dip our toes into this this morning. I'm so excited to come back next week and to finish this story, but Lord, wow. Wow, so many men who have risked everything and put their lives on the line so that we can be here this morning. Lord, you have been so gracious to work through history, to work through these chosen servants, Lord. We rest in your sovereignty, Lord, but we're grateful. We're a grateful people today because men like Luther put everything on the line. God, we thank you for, as I said earlier, the relative peace and comfort that we have in this place We thank you that we have the word of God, that we can keep coming back to it, that we have it in our language. Lord, may we never take that for granted. Lord, may we never lose sight of what our true authority is, your word and your word alone. May we never lose sight of what the Bible has to say about how we are justified. God forbid that we ever fall back on our own goodness, our own human merit, our own works, Lord. May it never be May we always look to you and to your grace alone by faith alone. Thank you for what you're teaching us here, Lord. We love you. And now even as we begin to sing your praises, may all these things come back, flooding back to our minds as we sing and we sing our thanksgiving to, what, to you for what you've done. Thank you for this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.